0: From Outsides Healthy Living Group, this is HLG's Talk Healthy Today podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Davis. So for about the last couple of months, I've been doing IF, which is intermittent fasting, and I've been doing a sixteen-eight, which our wonderful guest is gonna get into, and I feel really good. Now, I have to say I haven't lost weight, but I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm just trying to maintain where I am. And if you listen to the show, you know I mentioned recently that I have this unfortunate tear in the planter plate of my foot, which means I really, I can only walk literally just to, you know, get around the house, do errands, things like that. So it's been pretty brutal. I was doing, you know, six days a week, 45 minute to hour dog walks and getting my heart rate up. And now I'm not. I am still doing my Pilates and bodyweight exercises, but the fact that I've been able to maintain my weight without any cardio, I feel like this IF is doing something. And joining us today is an incredible, incredible expert, Cynthia Thurlow, NP. We're talking about her book. You got to get this book, people. Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-Day Program for Women to Lose Stubborn Weight, Improve Hormonal Health, and Slow Aging. Cynthia Thurlow is a nurse practitioner, intermittent fasting and nutrition expert, and a two-time TEDx speaker. She is passionate about helping women find wellness through the healing power of nutrition and fasting. She believes it is possible to feel better tomorrow than you do today, and she wants to equip you to experience that freedom. Cynthia, welcome to Talk Healthy Today. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to connecting with you. Yeah, it's been a long time. I was on your show a few years ago about my book, and now you're on my show, and I've been following you on social media, and you are blowing up. I mean, you just have such amazing work out there. One of the things I love about your book, and there are many, I love in the intro that you share your own health struggles. I Mm -hmm. think to be candid and to put it out there is so important, without giving too much away, because I want people, obviously, to get the book. Just tell us a little bit about what you went through and what helped.
1: Well, I I think even as a seasoned, well-trained Western medicine nurse practitioner, no one ever talked to me about perimenopause, what to expect, what changes were going to happen, how I might feel, not my mother, not my girlfriends, not my GYN, no one. So I was doing all of the wrong things, not realizing it because on the outside, they look like healthy things, right? Right. Too much exercise too low carb, not enough sleep, too much stress. I had a very demanding job, um, two little kids and a husband who did a lot of travel. And so for me, intermittent fasting was part of my strategies to harness my health back because when you're five foot three and you suddenly put on 10 pounds, you know, people here 10 pounds, it's not a big deal. Well, when you're five foot three, it's a lot, it's very noticeable. And so, you know, for me, it started with a constellation of symptoms, which really were an an identifier of the fact that I was making this transition, this reverse puberty phase that all women, if they live long enough, will go through, but no one had ever prepared me. And so I really wrote the book with the intent for all women, irrespective of where they are in life stage, to be able to benefit from my mistakes so that they won't make the same ones. And and I think it, it says a lot that even though I trained at a a leading medical institution here in the United States, no one ever talked to me about perimenopause. No one ever explained it to me. And so now I feel like this has really become the platform with which I can share my knowledge with others. But yeah, the story was cringy. You know, it's always cringy. You know, you know you're hitting the right note when you cringe because you think to yourself, I'm really putting myself out there, but I think relatability is critically important. I think there's so much noise on social media that people will, see an account or see a person and think, Oh, everything looks perfect. I'm far from perfect, but I would really love to save women. Some of what I went through so that they can understand what's happening to their body or what has happened to their bodies so that they know how to take better care of themselves. Perfect example is that you mentioned you had a foot injury and fasting has allowed you, despite, you know, having some limitations on your physical activity to feel like you're still in control, that you're still you know, able to take care of yourself. And I think that's so, so important because there are a lot of mixed messages out there on social media. Um, I have to believe it's with good intent that people put misinformation out there because uh, I refuse to embrace the methodology that it's, it's done with ill intent. But I think it's important for those of us that know better to share so that we can all do better as a, as a group, especially for women.
0: Oh, I completely agree. You know, I thought it was interesting that you talked about that you didn't set out to pursue a career in medicine, that you were pre law. Mm-hmm. And I love that you write because I am so obsessed with my dogs and you have Baxter and Cooper and you write basically what pivoted me into healthcare was my dog. Tell us about this. And also, your son, mm-hmm. who at four months old had terrible eczema and then you yeah. had to research and be like, something's going on here.
1: Well, I feel like there's always opportunities in our lifetime that we reflect back on that make more sense now, retrospectively, right. and certainly getting a dog, because I'd always wanted a dog. My parents were divorced. It didn't make any sense. I get it now, right. but getting a dog really demonstrated to me what I was most interested in. It was not becoming an attorney. So that was one major pivot, because it would have been easier just to go on to law school. Um, same thing with my, my youngest, or actually my oldest son now. Uh, when he developed such debilitating uh, eczema and the kind of standard conventional Western medicine is slap some high potency topical cortic- corticosteroids on there, quiet the inflammation and move on. And I kept saying, is it something I'm eating? Cause he was exclusively breastfed and, you know, over time the eczema got better, but it really stayed with me cause it was so profound. He had it on his cheeks. He had it on his arms. He had it on, you know, the back of his legs and, of course, he was too young to really understand. But, you know, for me, that's another major pivot because I started looking differently at nutrition and, and I kept asking the question, you know, what is it about our food that is driving the degree of allergies, immune system issues that we're seeing? I was seeing not only in my patient population, but my N of one was my son. And if I can't do better for him, then that speaks to a larger problem. And, and I think the other piece is. You know, for anyone who's listening who has children with severe life threatening food allergies, like my older son has, for me it was a very challenging time because the allergist sent me home with, and I kid you not, carry an Epi pen and pray.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And, you know, having my first child, I didn't have anything to, to compare it to. And that was terrifying to think that I could take him to a restaurant or we could eat at a friend's house and it could put him in anaphylactic shock. And, you know, I, I as a, Former ER nurse, I know exactly what that means, and so that really, as a typical mom would be, you know, got me very vested in looking for more answers, better information, and uh, you know, sent me down a rabbit hole that changed the trajectory of everything I did.
0: Now we've mentioned intermittent fasting. If you can define that for us,
1: yeah, the easiest way to define it is you eat less often. Uh, I think it's it's also helpful for people to understand that the kind of conventional dogma that we've been hearing for years that you need to eat with you know meal frequency every two to three hours to stoke your metabolism. Uh, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I would actually argue that meal frequency. And by that, I mean, the average American consuming three meals a day and snacks and sugar sweetened beverages is driving the metabolic health issues yeah. that we're seeing. You know, insulin resistance plays a role in nearly every chronic disease state that we're seeing. And so when you intermittent fast, it's just, you are eating within a prescribed time period. It could be a six hour window, it could be an eight hour window. Um, Heck, you might even have a four hour window. I don't generally recommend that for women consistently, but there's defined times in which you eat and defined times in which you do not eat. And it's much more aligned with the way our bodies are designed to thrive. And by that, I mean, our bodies are not designed to eat constantly. It doesn't even give digestion a break. It dysregulates hormones. Um, I remind people all the time that, unfortunately, insulin is one example. It's gotten a really bad rap. Everyone associates negativity with insulin. And I always say, if insulin is properly regulated, it is a beautiful hormone. But if you're constantly eating, you never give your body an opportunity to have lowered insulin levels, which allows your body to tap into fat, to use that as a fuel source to lose weight. And so I think that's a really important distinction, that our meal frequency choices have a lot to do with how metabolically healthy we are. And we know that based on a study from 2018, that 88.2% of the population is currently metabolically unhealthy. And it's probably not much better now. It's probably closer to 90%. So you really want to do what everyone else is not doing because it's not working. That's the big thing. You know, you look at photos. There was a, a podcast guest I had on a few months ago, and he had a photo from 1969 Woodstock. This is Vinny Tortorich. I love Vinny. Vinny's awesome. And then he had a photo from 1999 and he said, Cynthia, I cannot make this up. These photos are not doctored. He said, I looked at thousands of photos. People in 1969 were relatively thin and healthy looking. 1999, completely the opposite. And it is not any better now. And so I think it really requires effort for us to us as a society to start making the hard choices so that we can live more healthfully because it is not normal to be insulin resistant it should not be the norm and insulin resistance just bleeds literally bleeds into so many health issues and you know after working in cardiology as an mp for 16 years i do not want you to end up on 50 medications or 25 medications or end up having multiple angioplasties or interventions or stents or bypass surgery And a lot of that can be influenced by how frequently we eat and what we choose to eat.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. And and it's funny with Vinny. I met him in an elevator. We were both on our way up to be guests on Carol Alt's show, A Healthy You. Cool. This was like seven years ago. And we just hit it off. Like we'd been friends and we've kept in touch. And I've been on his show and he's been on my show. Vinny's fabulous. Yes, if people don't know who he is. Vinny Tortures. Definitely look him up. Oh, and his fat, the documentary. So he has fat, fat two, and beyond
1: impossible.
0: It's is his latest oh, one. I didn't see. Yeah. I didn't see it's the next really, two. They're okay. really good. He's done such a beautiful
1: job. And I Love that he, uh, you know, to me, I grew up in New Jersey and he's kind of a no, no, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't hold his punches. I mean, he,
0: no. he'll, he'll <laughs> shine a
1: light on something if it requires uh, us to really take a look at it. And I, I think that's important because uh, on so many levels, when we're looking at social media accounts or even podcasts, I think we feel a sense of pressure to be politically correct all the time. And I'm not saying, suggesting we be insensitive or we be thoughtless, but I think it's important for us to actually articulate our opinions and to stop being so people pleasing, which is something I know we were talking about before. But I think right. we as Women, we get caught up in that trap of, you know, wanting to be all things to all people, wanting to say yes to everything. And I think it's it's far more important to kind of take a stand and say, this is acceptable. This is unacceptable. And here's why.
0: You know, before we get into the sixteen-eight, which I mentioned, and that's what your IF plan centers on, and it's cool, I'm glad. I was like, oh, good, that's what I'm doing, and all the amazing health benefits. You had mentioned bad dogma, and in the book, you have four things, and the first one, and we don't have to go through them all, because again, you got to get the book, is calories in, calories mm-hmm. out. This is what matters. Oh, my gosh, we've heard that to death. Yeah. What is going on yeah. there? What's the truth, Cynthia? Well, I mean,
1: let's be clear. I mean, calories is a, a unit of energy. I mean, it is an actual measurement. But our body is far more sophisticated than that. And, And this kind of reductionistic thinking of, I just have to monitor how much caloric intake I have. And that then translates into losing weight or whatever it is you're trying to achieve is not giving your body the opportunity to demonstrate to you how critically important hormones are in weight loss and weight gain. And once you can master Balancing hormones, you are going to be much more successful with metabolic flexibility, as well as you know whether you want to gain or lose weight, depending on the individual. So when people say to me "seco" or you know calories in, calories out, I'm like, that's not the way our bodies work. I oftentimes will find that there are still people who who really endeavor to hang on to that old dogma, and I remind people that you know we we are meant to evolve, shift and change. We are we are designed to be lifelong learners. That's that's really that's how I think of myself that that might have been what I thought, but now I know better. And I think it's important for people to understand that fasting is one way that you can help balance just, you know, many hormones, the leptin and insulin and uh, leptin is like a key satiety hormone. Insulin is not a bad hormone, but if it's up, you're going to be in fat storage mode. If you can keep it controlled and keep it down, you can tap into those fat stores for energy. So I, I think it's really important for people to understand that calories, yes, do measure things, but our body recognizes macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrates. It recognizes the quality of the foods that we eat. It recognizes how inflammatory a food may or may not be. It recognizes chemicals we are exposed to, whether it's herbicides or pesticides. And that by far, not to mention the stress that our body's absorbing, you know, whether it's perceived or otherwise (sighs) has a lot to factor into, um, beyond just counting calories. Like there's a movement that I see on social media called if it fits my macros. And I think it really does women in particular really disservice because yeah, you could eat five donuts and yeah, that might fit your macros. But the impact of that sugar process laden junk food fiesta, if you will, uh, the net impact on your blood sugar and your hormone balance, and not to mention the fact what it's doing to the gut microbiome is so significant that no one should be following this concept of if it fits my macros, if that includes hyper palatable, highly processed foods, because you're really not doing yourself any benefit. And I, I think the other piece of that that I, I think is worth kind of mentioning that is a tie-in to Seco is that what you can get away with at 20 may be very different than what you can get away with at 40 or 45 or 50. And so, yes, when I was 20 and I was 30, I could eat very differently than I do now as a middle-aged woman. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think we we learn a whole lot more as we're growing and, and getting older, growing, growing intellectually, not physically, hopefully. <laughs> um, really important to kind of make that distinction that... You may not know it all, even though you think you do, uh, when you're younger, uh, and which is not to suggest I don't have people on my team that are just brilliant that are that are much younger than I am. But the point is, is just acknowledging that as we get older chronologically, our bodies will start to change, and we do have to adapt to changes. So if you're eight, if you're eating like you were at eighteen. And you're 50, you're going to have a problem. You don't need as many, you don't need as much food. I have teenagers and I can tell you teenage boys, uh, it's unbelievable how much food they can eat. And my kids are super athletic and lean and all those things. But my husband and I sit back and marvel. I'm like, wow, that's an impressive metabolism, like really impressive. I I don't think I'd eat that much food in two days, let alone like one (laughs) meal. It's
0: amazing. When I was in my 30s, my husband and I would go out to dinner. I would get two entrees so I wouldn't get dessert. But I was eating two entrees. And I actually have to be like careful and
1: conscientious, you know, as an example, like if I know I'm going out to eat and we become physiologically more insulin resistant as the day goes on, if I'm going to have carbs and I'm not anti-carb, I'm just saying if I'm going to have carbs, whether it's, you know, a root vegetable or I decide to have fruit or whatever, it's always middle of the day because I know that it's easier for me just to focus on non-starchy vegetables and protein with dinner. Um, but yeah, they're all the things that I've started to kind of figure out and learn at this stage in my my life. I'm like, it's amazing. I, I was pretty healthy in my 20s and 30s because I mean, I never gave any, I never thought about how much protein I ate at a meal. I never thought about what it was like to drink in the evening or eat, you know, pizza at two o'clock in the morning like we did in college many nights after going to fraternity parties. But it's amazing how, uh, I almost think it's a blessing that at that stage of your life, given the fact your brain is still developing and all the stupid things we do, that we don't think as much as, as we do. Like now I'm very thoughtful about when I break my fast, what I wait, break it with, what do I eat at dinner time? Um, but yeah, it's it's very humbling when you look at a teenager's metabolism and think, yeah, eventually you'll understand, but it's okay. It's okay.
0: Exactly. Well, what's, what's so amazing about the book is that you break it down so well. You really give us what we need to know about what when we should eat, what we should be eating. You brought up something that you have a couple of times in the book. You mentioned the, the term metabolic flexibility. Mm. What is that?
1: Well, I, I think that this is not discussed often enough um, in light of the, the past two years. Metabolic flexibility essentially means that your your body's able to choose between using fats for fuel or carbohydrates and we need both and most people are stuck in this carbohydrate burning mode which means they're inefficient um they get energy slumps they get hangry they struggle to lose weight uh you know they they tend to be people that are leaning towards being obese or overweight and, you know, they may even be told they're leptin or insulin resistant. And so we really want that flexibility. That's how our bodies are designed. We would not be here as a species if we could not go through periods of food scarcity and survive. And so it's really about efficiency. You know, I'm, I'm, a he- I'm married to an engineer and I always say efficiency is an important part of my life personally and professionally. And Jason Fung really does a beautiful job describing this. And so you have a refrigerator and in the refrigerator are the carbohydrates. You have to work through the carbohydrates before you can get into the fat and the fat is in the freezer. And so it's another kind of way of thinking about metabolic flexibility is that we need to be able to flex back and forth between using two types of fuel, but understanding that the way to become metabolically flexible requires less meal frequency, different meal choices, no snacking. You know, I think about the snacking industry alone has just decimated our health because we've been convinced that, you know, we can't go more than two to three hours between meals. So metabolic flexibility is as simplistic as saying our body can effectively use different types of, of fuel to maintain our cognition, to maintain our physical activity, etc., And that runs very contrary to, the information we've been telling our patients for you know 20 30 40 years about what we should be eating you know heart healthy grains and lots of carbohydrates to stoke your metabolism and and i would actually say that that has that has contributed that that of one is one of many things that have contributed to metabolic disease
0: don't even get me started on the food scientists it keeps coming up those snacks are engineered to make you eat more and more and more. Yes, it's
1: called The Bliss Point. And so there's a really great book. I don't know if you've read Salt, Sugar, Fat. And it's a book that just made me so angry when I read it because I was completely at that time naive to the processed food industry and The Bliss Point and how there's all this research done to figure out exactly how much sugar they need to add to a processed food to make it irresistible. And so I even say to my children, because I'm a realist, You know, we do have... Some chips, and we do have chocolate in our house. And I I always make sure it's like the cleanest option. Yes, me too. But I I realized that my kids are going to be exposed to these things. So they might as well eat something that's a little bit cleaner. And at least then it's at the house. But it's amazing to me that there are specific foods. If I have them in the house, my teenagers can't get enough of them. Like there's a, a clean... I'm going to put in air quotes. It's still a chip, but it's like low ingredient list. It's fairly clean Um, or organic ice cream. I mean, I cannot keep it in the house and I tell them all the time, like, listen, if you struggle to limit my my kind of my standard mantra is if you can't moderate, you eliminate. I realize that may not be realistic with teenagers, Um, but, but obviously I'm the one that's buying food that's coming in the house. So I just tell them like when it's gone, it's gone and I'm not buying it again for a while. And so trying to explain even to, Adult listeners, that if you have a kryptonite food, don't buy it. Like there are specific foods I just don't buy. Like I, I've been gluten free for ten years. I put an autoimmune issue into remission. However, that's great. You know, for me, things like gluten free cookies or cake or candy, other than my birthday, I try to avoid them because I struggle with moderation. However, I can have a piece of dark chocolate and I'm done. And so that's one of those things I would say: if you can't moderate, you eliminate. If you can moderate, great. But if you can't just don't have it in your house, it's just too tempting. And, and I think that uh, there's no shame in that. I, I, I fully admit that, you know, for me, whatever it is about cookies, like an, a gluten-free cookie, oh my gosh, it just makes me, I'm, I'm sure my mouth is watering as I'm saying it, but it really sets my brain up like those dopamine, dopamine is firing. But I think to, to reassure listeners that it is not uncommon when you consume hyper palatable, highly processed foods that have got like sugars and salts and the right amounts to make them irresistible, that it is not you, it is what's going on biochemically in the brain, but has likely been engineered by a food scientist so that you keep coming back for that hit because it tastes so good. You may not feel good afterwards, but you're, you, you know, you're, you're like, ooh, that tasted really good. I want to have that again and again and again and again. And it really sets you up for derailing your nutrition by far.
0: It's funny you mentioned the healthy Pringles because I know what you're talking mm-hmm. about. And I hadn't had them in probably like six months. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to get them. And I realized that I just can't control myself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I just can't have stuff in the house. There's an amazing potato chip made by Siete Foods. It's a Chipotle barbecue chip. And I went through this phase where I was buying them. And the other day, my daughter's like, mom, you stopped buying those chips. I'm like, yeah, they're amazing. And yes, they're, they're cooked in avocado, oil, fired in mm-hmm. avocado oil, which is still better with a high smoke point. But no, I eat too many. Yeah,
1: and that's a good example. Like if you can't moderate, then you eliminate. Like on, on my birthday, I have a big piece of chocolate cake and I enjoy it. And I, and I watch my, you know, my blood sugar shoot up in response to what I've eaten. <laughs> and then I watch it come back down. And then I tell my husband, okay, I'm done. And I just enjoyed it. And I think that, you can moderate those types of foods great and if you can't, then just don't 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 make it easy for you to fall into the trap where you're kind of seduced into into consuming foods that ultimately have like low nutritional yield. Um, the other trick that I sometimes will discuss is that if you're going to have, a treat, whether it's, you're having a glass of alcohol or you're having a dessert, etc. is to make sure you have like a really good meal to kind of buffer what you're eating. Meaning, you know, have a piece of steak, have some vegetables, and then if you decide to have dessert, it's gonna take longer for that food to kind of digest. That's actually be beneficial than if you have a, a bunch of wine on an empty stomach or eat a big sugary dessert and you feel terrible afterwards has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, if it's observed readily and, and quickly, it's going to have a, a more profound net impact on that blood sugar response.
0: Absolutely. I want to just mention some of the benefits of IF, burns fat, promotes gut health, creates metabolic flexibility, which we talked about, enhances mitochondrial health, cleans defective cells. This is big. I keep hearing about, I, I is it auto? So
1: it's autophagy. And so it's, this is one of the amazing aspects of intermittent fasting is that when we're in an unfed state, we upregulate this process that goes on where it cleans out disease, disordered organelles, mitochondria, et cetera. And I think this is particularly relevant given the past two years in particular, you know, as we're trying to upregulate immune system support, as we kind of consider, you know, some of the, the metabolic health issues, I think mitochondria and talking about autophagy mitochondria are the powerhouses of our cells, critically important. If you're north of 40, you probably have a significant degree of dysfunctional mitochondria. So important for your body to effectively take out the trash. That's how I always like to describe autophagy is it's our body's ability to get rid of what does not belong. And it's so, so important. Um, And it's something that people want to split hairs on. Like how many hours do you have to fast before autophagy kind of on and i remind people the longer you fast the more autophagy that's not to suggest there are not health benefits from fasting for 12 13 14 hours you're still giving your body an opportunity to bring insulin down um you know to definitely have some degree of digestive rest allow your body to kind of get back on track and and uh, i love that you brought up autophagy it's it's absolutely one of my favorite aspects of intermittent fasting and one that You know, I hope people, you know, even though it's a scientific term, you may not have been familiarized with, it's certainly a really important one.
0: Yeah, it really is. And I had no idea how to say it. It's apophagy. So that is is good for me to know. Hi, it's Lisa. Just wanted to pop in real quick and just say... I am doing a book giveaway for my book, Clean Eating Dirty Sex. It's a cookbook, a memoir, a healthy lifestyle guide. It's not about dirty sex. It's a play on words. And anyway, it's really about overall health. All you have to do to enter is just sign up for my monthly newsletter. It takes a second. Just your name, boom. Your email, boom. And... You're going to get great information, great tips, great recipes in the newsletters, as well as find out some big, exciting things that I have coming up that you don't want to miss. So go to lisadavismph.com today. All right, back to the show. Let's get back to the sixteen-eight. So that's what I've been doing. So I stop eating at 6.30 at night, and then I don't eat again until 9.30 mm-hmm. in the morning. And that works really well. That's great. That's great. And
1: the neat thing is you can move that, that fasting window timeframe around. So yeah,
0: sometimes I do six to nine
1: and I think, you know, like yesterday is a good example. I had a lot of podcasts and I ate in between a few of them. And so I ate my last meal was at three. And so I told my husband at nine o'clock this morning, I was like, you know, I'm really hungry and I've got my first podcast at 10. So I actually broke my fast at nine o'clock and uh, ran a couple errands but the, the beautiful thing is that you can move those time frames around like it could be one day you're doing you know a 16 hour fast and maybe you're fasting from six o'clock at night until 10 a.m. the following day and then maybe the following day it might be completely different and and that's the beauty once you're fat adapted once your body is able to have that metabolic flexibility, you can get really creative with your fasting and feeding windows. And I think that's an important component that it, you know, fasting doesn't have to be rigid. That's one of the the key kind of concepts that I like women to understand is that you can fast differently around your menstrual cycle, around travel, around business or personal commitments. It doesn't have to be super rigid. I had someone in a group that was concerned they were going to miss out on going to a party. And I said, no, just, you know, open up your feeding and fasting window a little later. Like maybe you're, Instead of breaking it at 11 o'clock, you're going to break it at two, and then you've got plenty of room in your feeding window. Or maybe it's a day you're just going to have a wider feeding window, and that's okay as well. Um, but I love that you have started with sixteen eight. I think that's a really uh, reasonable time frame with which to aim for if you're new. Uh, and certainly, it's, it's kind of the old standbys. It's how I typically think about it, that it's always something you can come back to if maybe you're playing around. Maybe you're doing some 24-hour fast. Maybe you're doing longer fast. Maybe you're doing you know, a 20 hour fast one day, just because you couldn't fit in some food uh, amongst your work day. And that certainly happens to me unknowingly. It's not sometimes expected, but some days it's just easier to wait until all the work is done and then I can enjoy my meal.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think maybe one of the reasons I haven't lost weight is I haven't stopped snacking. Although I don't really snack on much. I might have like two squares of 77 to 80 something percent dark chocolate, and then maybe, you know, an apple. So it's not, I'm not eating crackers mm-hmm. or chips or cookies or anything. Is that still not okay? Yeah. Well, I think yeah,
1: defining your goals. So if someone's trying to change body composition or lose weight, then discretionary snacking and fatty coffees can make a huge difference. If You're already at a, a healthy weight and this is, you know, you want to enjoy a piece of fruit and some dark chocolate. I think that's great. I might add a healthy fat, like maybe have some nut butter or have some nuts so that you're kind of slowing the absorption of those carbohydrates. I think that's important or have some protein with it. Um, I think that can be very, very helpful, but I I think it really ultimately comes down to what are your goals? Like if someone comes to me and says, I want to lose 20 pounds. Well, the difference between having snacks or having like a, what I would consider like a sweet treat, or maybe that's your dessert, um, can be a differentiator. You know, those fatty coffees with MCT oil and butter. Uh, I was reminding a woman the other day, she was having, (laughs) She was having two fatty coffees a day. And when I heard how much cream she was putting in her coffee and MCT oil, I said, well, you have to remember that fat is not a bad thing, but even healthy fats in too large amounts can tell our body, okay, we've got a food surplus. We're going to hold on to what we've got here. And that can knowingly unravel your, your opportunity to, to lose weight. So I think being very clear about why you're fasting, what your goals are, Allows you to kind of focus in. Like, for example, if a woman's trying to lose weight, sometimes she has to eat leaner cuts of meat. Like, I'm very animal based protein, but instead of having ribeye, maybe you need to focus on filet. Or instead of having salmon, maybe you need to have cod. Um, Not adding a lot of discretionary nuts and cheese. Nuts and cheese, as an example, are delicious and hard to moderate. Remember what I said earlier if you can't moderate, you eliminate. And in my house, I love salted macadamia nuts. It's one of my favorite things to eat and I will open up the bag. I will bring out a measuring cup, which I don't normally do. I put my quarter cup of nuts in a bowl and I close the bag up and I put it back in my pantry because if I leave the bag out, I will continue snacking on said nuts. So I think it's important to be aware of your food cues to not over fast so that you are overcompensating and overeating. And also if a woman is still uh, having her menstrual cycle, understanding that you don't want to fast the same way every single week during your menstrual cycle, because that too can kind of set you up. But yes, I do think there's a differentiator between someone who's at a healthy weight, who doesn't want to lose weight, weight loss resistance versus someone who is trying to lose weight and is, you know, kind of figuring out like the first couple steps. I think all of those have to be looked at differently, but definitely defining goals and kind of articulating what your goals are is a great first step.
0: Well, I want to jump into the plan because it's amazing. And I am so impressed that every day of the plan, it's a 45-day plan, you actually have something. I'm, I i took a few from each category because I'm just so impressed. But it's divided into three phases. You've got the induction, that's a one-week preparatory phase, the optimization, and the modification. Tell us a little bit about each one and then I'm just going to take out some of my favorite things that you recommended. And just to have something each day to be like, oh, today I'm going to make a vegetable juice or today, you know, it's like, oh my God, this you put so much work in us, Not to mention, all the information on all the different hormones, looking at all the different macros. I mean, this book is just a masterpiece. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. So the first week is really focused on getting you
1: ready to start fasting and it cleans out your pantry. It's really encouraging women to think differently about their relationship with food. So snacking oftentimes is the first band-aid to rip off. Uh, If you're going to successfully fast, so I I talk a lot about macros, you know, protein, fat, and carbohydrates, how we want to strategize there. And then as we kind of progress into the next stage of the book, that's really the what, you know, what you need to do to be successful. And I'm very clear. I want people to learn the best practices so that when they go out to do it on their own, they know, okay, if I'm not getting the results I want, what do I need to go back to? I need to go back to clean fasting. I need to go back to eating more vegetables. I need to go back to focusing on protein. And so, really laying out a clear cut plan, you know, day to day. And then the last part of the book is really talking about the challenges. You know, once you're fat adapted, once your body's metabolically flexible, um, and for each one of us, that could take, you know, might take a week or two with some, may take longer with others, especially if you have more weight to lose or more carbohydrate dependent. And so, I think it can be really valuable for people to have a challenge to work up to. Like, that's my personality that. I always want to be challenging my body, much like we don't eat the same food every day. We don't exercise the same way every day. It's important to understand we don't want to fast the same exact way every day once we're fat adapted. So I talk a lot about um, some of my favorite challenges that are in the back, like the five one one, which is five days of your normal fasting regimen, one day of a 24-hour fast, and then one day, which unfortunately gets thought of as a feast day. is not a feast day. It's a day to increase your protein intake. And it's really a way to remind your body that you're not starving. So you're kind of rerouting, you know, those pathways, reminding your body, you're getting a little more food intake that day. And then you kind of roll into, um, roll into that next week. So it's really exciting to be able to put all these ideas in one place because this has been several years worth of work. Um, what's worked well, what has not, um, and that's constantly evolving. Every time I teach IF 45, which is the program that's in the book. Um, there are constantly things I'm tweaking and adjusting and um really it's it's a it's a book that's a labor of love because there's really no one else that's written a book that's really dedicated as a woman to women so that they can understand fundamentally what's going on with their bodies and and really ensure that they can thrive and not just right now, but throughout their lifetime.
0: On day six, try going grain free. On day fifteen, rethink your hunger cues. Uh, On day 35, evaluate non-scale victories. On day 40, adjust your macros on more intense exercise days. I also love that you have make the right food choices based on your bio-individuality.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, after so many years of working with, you know, male and females, I understand that if I took 10 patients and wanted to put them on high blood pressure medication as one example, I couldn't give them all the same medications, not the same doses. And so it's very similar with, you know, fasting that we have to tweak things based on where are you in your menstrual cycle? What's your sleep like? What's your stress management like? What's your nutrition like? You know, what are the levers that you need to pull based on what's going on in your personal life? And so, bioindividuality just really takes into account everything that's about us as, a, as an individual. And then, what stress level are we under? Now, one thing that's worth kind of mentioning is that fasting is an example of hormesis or hermetic stress on the body. So, it's the right amount of stress at the right time in the right amount. And that's why fasting. And that's why I always say like checking in with yourself. Did you sleep terrible last night? Is your energy really off this morning? Maybe today is not a good day to fast. It's really getting granular and getting really attuned to your body's cues. This is something that we've likely obliterated given the fact that we're eating so frequently and we're, we're not necessarily responding to hunger cues. We're just responding to, okay, it's lunchtime. I should eat and I'm not hungry. Right, And so bioindividuality really honors each of us as individuals. You know, I can give guidelines and I can give suggestions, but really what I want women to walk away with is a feeling of inspiration and empowerment to try to figure it out, like do a little bit of experimentation, figure out what macros make you feel good. How much sleep do you need? Like I can tell you what the science says, but what feels good for you? And I would imagine it's probably more sleep versus less sleep. And I think it's also critically important to just understand it is okay if Lisa um, has more carbohydrates that make her feel good than someone else. You know, you're at a point where you're at a healthy weight, you're not looking to lose weight, maybe 75 grams a day works for you, but for someone else would be too much, for someone else it might be too little. And so really kind of tweaking and adjusting and and doing your own experimentation to find what works best. I know personally, I, I know my body well enough now that I really lean into what my body is trying to tell me on a day when my sleep isn't as good and my energy's off in the morning. I don't do really long fasts. It's also not the day I go to the gym and I want to like kill a leg workout. That's not the day to do it. It might be a day I get out and walk with my dogs in the sunlight. It might be a day that I, I do yoga. Um, it might be a day I put myself to bed earlier than um, my teenagers who think that's hilarious. But I, I think bioindividuality individuality is a term that we should all know And I oftentimes will use the term N of one, meaning I am one or you are one still means that what you're finding out and and when you are experimenting with your own body is still very significant.
0: Yeah, it really is. Yeah, my daughter laughs at me because I go to bed at 8.30. I like eight to nine hours Mm of sleep. What's good is because I've talked to her so much about the importance of sleep, she goes to bed by 9.30. But I think it's also,
1: you know, encouraging our kids to listen and be attuned to their bodies like i have boys and you know on the weekends they'll stay up till 12 1 2 o'clock in the morning and that's their norm and so i say to them all the time that's fine on the weekend but during the weekdays 10 o'clock i want them shut down in their beds sometimes that's a battle sometimes it's even bigger battle when my husband's traveling and i'm the one that has to you know make sure everything's but wait, because my body wants to go to bed, my aura ring's screaming at me by 8.45 saying, you know, I want you in bed by eight, between 8.45 and 9.45. That's like my body's magic window. And you can, if anyone has an aura ring, it's one of these great biohacking devices. I've got one on right here. Um, obviously, uh, people can't see this. I know you can see it, but it's just a really great way to track REM sleep, deep sleep, you know, your activity, uh, you know, your readiness scores, and it correlates with how I physically feel. And so I really do take the aura ring data really seriously. And I correlate it with my continuous glucose monitor. And to me, it really gets me honest. It keeps me very honest with myself. Like when I think I can, you know, burn the candle at 10 different directions. And then I realize I really can I'm like, I'm not Superwoman. I might like to think I am, but the reality of the situation is most, if not all of us need far more sleep than we realize.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. All right. I'm going to get into some of these amazing recipes, and you've got some delicious ones. So first of all, I love skirt steak. I absolutely love it. And you have one with an avocado horseradish cream that is non-dairy. And you mentioned in the book, Things to Eliminate, one of them was dairy.
1: Very, very triggering,
0: (laughs) very triggering. Yes. And that was delicious. I have on my list to make so many of these. A the spicy bison chili looks amazing. Uh, the sheet pan salmon and broccoli with lemon pepper butter. Now, you mentioned dairy. Now, what some people can tolerate butter, mm-hmm. right? If, but they can't. So tell us about, because I know you're like no margarine.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, even me being dairy-free for going on four years, I do tolerate occasionally having grass-fed butter, Uh, A lot of people can tolerate that. I mean, ghee is clarified butter, so that may even be easier for some people. Uh, It's been my experience that cow milk dairy is the one that's so incredibly inflammatory. There are people that do better with goat's milk or sheep's milk dairy, and it may require a bit of a supplementation. For a lot of people, goat milk and sheep milk is a little sheepy and goaty, uh, but sometimes they'll enjoy, you know, machango cheese, or maybe they're gonna have some, you know, goat milk cheese, uh, and that seems to be better tolerated. So really getting honest with yourself. I mean, for myself personally, I call dairy affectionately the five pound dairy because when I was going through all of the perimenopause, brouhaha, uh, removing dairy was one of the contributors, even though I wasn't eating it often, definitely was inflammatory in my body. And as hard as it was to give up, I don't miss it at all now, but I recall at the time thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to give up having a piece of raw milk cheese or occasionally having yogurt? And you grow to find alternatives. So If you're struggling if you've got weight loss resistance i encourage people to even spend 30 days without dairy or even gluten because we know they can be so inflammatory in the body and so yes when i put the recipes together with beth lipton who's this amazing recipe creator and chef uh, that was one of the things i asked for i wanted them to be gluten free i wanted them to be dairy free because that's very aligned with what i teach and what i talk about and the beautiful thing is you can still make food to be absolutely delicious and exclude just those two variables and still have the opportunity to eat lots of other, you know, wonderful things that don't include gluten or dairy.
0: Yes. And I bought the ingredients for tonight. I like to make something special on Friday for the creamy pesto chicken spinach casserole where you use coconut milk. Oh my God, that looks so good. I'm so excited for tonight. (laughs) That looks so good. You also have a huevos ranchero salad, which is great. I also love making things with spaghetti squash. I love to make a really good meat Mm. sauce. With grass-fed meat and, you know, the ton of garlic. Like so much garlic, it's, you know, people don't want to be around me, but that's okay. It's delicious. And fresh basil and the whole thing. And that's so good. You have a dairy-free spaghetti squash alfredo. You've got a skillet jambalaya with cauliflower rice. I definitely want to make your romesco dip. We were in... DC around, what was it? 2019, mm-hmm. April, 2019. And we treated ourselves and we went to the Four Seasons and they have this beautiful restaurant. And that's the first time I ever had romesco. It was on so flank good. steak and it blew me away. Yeah. So to make my own is really exciting. For people who don't know, what is romesco? Cause it's, it's. Valid. Yeah. I mean, it's considered to be a, a more Spanish leaning uh, sauce. And so usually it's
1: got tomatoes, sometimes red peppers uh, garlic, depending on who's making it. Um, and it's, it's designed to be flavorful. It can be spicy. It really depends if you're adding like hot peppers to it. But uh, that was one of the things that I had asked Beth, I, you know, she said, what are some of your favorite foods? And I was like, Oh, I always have romesco sauce in my house um, that I put on everything like burgers and steak. And sometimes I just eat it with vegetables. And so it's a nice, clean, flavorful sauce um, you know, generally has either avocado or, or extra virgin olive oil in it, but you can make it as garlicky or as spicy as you want it to be. But to me, it's just a really nice way of honoring your body without dairy. You know, I think there's so many of the sauces that are out there have, you know, heavy cream or they've got a lot of cheese in it. And so, you know, to me, it's, it's a blessing when I can have something that still feels kind of sinful and delectable um, but also honors the fact that I choose to to keep those things out. So my hope is that will end up being a favorite recipe of yours as well.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to make that. Now, what are some of your favorite recipes in addition to that? Um, I, I would say anything with eggs because I'm, I'm like a
1: huge, I mean, that became a joke in the book. Like how many deviled egg variations do you want? Uh, you know, chimichurri, romesco for sure, chili, um, things that are just easy. Like for me, I don't have a ton of prep time. Obviously with two teenage boys, my husband and I, it's like both of us making sure we have enough protein prepped for these growing kids. Um, And so, you know, for me, things that are flavorful and healthy and easy, that's really the basis that we wanted to kind of come from when we wrote, when, when Beth was writing the recipes and we were testing them out was, I don't want people to spend a ton of time in the kitchen. I want them to be flavorful. I don't want people to buy a lot of unusual ingredients, although I love experimenting. That's not what I wanted people to go out and buy a bottle of some obscure spice that they would never use again. And so that was really the intent we set was, I have a lot of books with a lot of recipes that I never think to use because there's some obscure recipe that requires me to spend $20. It's going to sit on a shelf. It's going to get, you know, old, and then I'm going to throw it away. So really trying to honor our our time as as women um, to try to make things as easy as possible.
0: Speaking of making things easy, you've got fantastic meal plans and they use your recipes and it tells you exactly lunch, dinner, lunch, dinner. I mean, it makes it so easy. So let's talk about vegans and vegetarians because you do have recipes for them, which I didn't know, which I did not mention. But I know that you mentioned in the book that you prefer people get their protein from an animal source, grass fed, pasture raised, etc. Is it more difficult for vegans and vegetarians, or is it just take more tweaking on their part of, of of their macros?
1: You know, I think if a vegetarian is incorporating eggs and some dairy, then it, it can be they can get enough protein in their diets. I, I just find that vegans tend to, and I respect that if that's what you choose and that's your belief system, it's very hard to eat lower carb and be vegan. It can be very challenging as a vegetarian to eat lower carb and be vegetarian. And these very often are exactly the individuals that really need some metabolic flexibility because they're they're stuck in a position where they're so carb dependent that they're not able to You know harness the the benefits of intermittent fasting and and most people if they have weight to lose they need to adjust their intake of carbohydrates so yes we did try to we did try to create some vegetarian not vegan vegetarian recipes so that we can honor the individuals and many of the recipes you can pull out the animal-based protein sources if you choose Um, but i just think it's important for us to especially as women especially with aging a lot of the changes that happen to our bodies that we're getting sufficient amounts of protein in and it's very hard to do that if you're plant-based predominantly.
0: And you also say who shouldn't do I have. So tell us a little bit about that. I think this is really important because
1: I see a lot of misinformation on social media. Again, I hope it's well intentioned. Um, I, I don't think it's a good idea to fast if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. Um, we know that there can be epigenetic changes at the cellular level, especially you know, with this preconception into becoming pregnant phase. Um, it's also a time when you're growing a human and growing a human does not involve restricting your food intake. I mean, if you're eating crappy food, that's obviously different, but we want to be eating the most nourishing food, the healthiest food possible. Same thing when you're breastfeeding. Uh, you know, it, it's critically important that we give our children a really good start. So pregnant and breastfeeding women, women who are underweight. So if your BMI is under 18, Please don't hide your anorexia in the guise of it being intermittent fasting. You're really not fooling anyone. If someone has a disordered relationship with food, uh, I have certainly seen outliers where women have had a history of binge eating or anorexia or bulimia that have gone unsuccessfully fast, but it generally involves having a therapist or someone you're working with who's very experienced with eating disorders that can help guide you through that process. I am not that person. Obviously, I, I refer out to people to help with that kind of support. Uh, If someone has a chronic illness, so if you've got really brittle diabetes, you've been in the hospital, you have some significant medical problem that requires you to be evaluated very regularly by a specialist or your primary care provider, probably a good idea to have a conversation with them so that they're aware of what's going on. Um, I'm not a fan of fasting for children. I, I was actually asked several times yesterday, could teenagers do this? And I said, I'm not suggesting that we tell our teenagers not to eat when they're hungry. What I am suggesting is that if you are still growing, your brain is still developing up to the age of 25, your prefrontal cortex, this is not a time for kids to be restricting food. And so I I think that if you have an obese child who's being seen in conjunction with an endocrinologist or a medical specialist, and they themselves together with the parents have decided this is a child who needs to restrict carbohydrates or has fatty liver, any of these kind of metabolic diseases, that's very different. I do have a 14 year old for full disclosure who does not like eating breakfast. I don't force him to eat breakfast. However, this kid eats so much food in his feeding window. I mean, he eats a big lunch. He comes home and eats what I affectionately refer to either a first dinner or second lunch. And then he goes and swims. And then he comes home and has another massive meal. And so I no longer fight him about eating before he goes to school. Cause he tells me all the time, mom, by the time I get to school, I've only been found, fa- I haven't eaten in 11 hours. I'm going to be fine. So I kind of give him their space at the age that he is, but as a rule, no teens or young adults, unless they are done growing and fully developed. I think that we really do ourselves a disservice by trying to, um, you know, moderate or, you know, tweak our children's diets because maybe perhaps they're struggling, but I think it's important that you're working with a, a you know qualified pediatrician uh, or someone that's going to be able to guide you through that. So Um, I made the mistake during my second TED talk of saying no one should fast over the age of 70, and I got a lot of angry emails. And so I do think there are plenty of older, more mature adults who can effectively fast. But if you're frail and you're falling and you're dehydrated, it is not the strategy to embrace. And I, I come to find that generally as people get chronologically older, they don't want, they typically aren't eating as much food. So you know, to their to their point, they may feel like they can effectively fast, but I really think bioindividuality individuality rules. But those are kind of my hard and and true fervent saying. No, these are absolutely not safe things to be embracing while fasting.
0: Now, in the book, you have in- information on supplements, which is really helpful. So I take this amazing probiotic, OmniBiotic. I've done my mm-hmm. research, and it lists all the strains, and it's awesome. But it isn't a powder but I take it right when I get up on an empty stomach, but I'm wondering if I should be waiting until 9.30 when I usually eat. Yeah. Supplements,
1: I mean, generally as a rule, I like supplements to be dosed around food because it'll help slow the absorption. Supplements usually associated with some fat, so it'll slow the absorption. Um, We can get very nuanced about supplements. Obviously, like as an example, magnesium is not going to break break your fast, but you have to look at the quality of the product. If it's full of gluten and fillers and corn and all sorts of other derivatives, that's a no. Um, I remind people that things like branch chain amino acids, collagen peptides will break a fast because that's protein. It gets very nuanced. Probiotics, I generally recommend taking around a meal so that you can slow the absorption. Now, obviously, I'm not familiar with the product that you're referring to. And if the instructions are to take it on an empty stomach, I might do that at the tail end of a fasting window so that you're eating it and then you're eating a short time later. I think that's reasonable.
0: You must you must see incredible results from mental clarity to better sleep, to weight loss, to better autophagy. I always say that I, I want the,
1: the, the non-scale victories to be what's most significant, but of course people like to focus on the weight loss. Many women have said, I've gotten my life back. I've lost 30 or 40 pounds and... Um, you know, now I feel like I'm able to serve my family. I'm sleeping better. My blood sugar's better. I'm now off of diabetes medications or my thyroid is improved. I think it really runs the gamut for some people. It could be as simple as their cycles become more regular. Um, it could be that their sleep is improved. They're not having hot flashes. Like I have one woman who was in her late forties and was convinced she was like knocking on the door of menopause and said, uh, I, I cannot believe that just eating less frequently has balanced my blood sugar enough that I no longer have hot flashes because there's this misnomer that hot flashes are supposed to be normal and acceptable. And I would be the first person to say like hot flashes are a sign that there is an imbalance going on. And, and you know, that's why I actually, I didn't drink very much, but when I would drink alcohol, it was the only time I would get hot flashes and it impacted my sleep. So it was very easy to just say, I'm not going to do that. But as it pertains to my program, weight loss, mental clarity, less hot flashes, people feeling they have a renewed interest in exercising because maybe their joints don't hurt as much anymore. They're able to get in the gym or go, you know, interact with their families more. I mean, the the slew of benefits have just been, I mean, it's so humbling to think that there's a strategy that people can harness that has such a tremendous net benefit. And it really dates back to biblical times. It's really not new or novel. You know, when people want to believe, oh, this is like the hottest thing of 2019, Yeah, it's being researched because more of us are talking about it. And I think given the public health crisis that we're having right now, more clinicians, more podcast hosts and radio hosts, we need to be talking about this so that we can make people more aware of the value of eating less frequently. I say it that way because the word fasting can be triggering really how important it can be for men and for women. My book is obviously written for women, but could apply to men as well.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I was going to mention that. Well, Cynthia, I think you're incredible. The book is Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-Day Program for Women to Lose Stubborn Weight, Improve Hormonal Health, and Slow Aging. Tell us all the places we can find your fantastic book and your podcast and all the great stuff you're doing. Thank you. So
1: Everyday Wellness Podcast is my podcast, and you've been a guest on there in the past. Yes, um, my website's probably a great place to start www.cynthiatherlow.com up until March 15th, which is publication date. There are some amazing pre-sale bonuses, including a masterclass with me, which will only be available for those who pre-order the book. Um, there's also a program called clean and 14, which will take your results to another level and more recipes that were created by Beth Lipton. Um, the book itself can be pre-ordered on Amazon Barnes and Noble, Target, or any of your local retailers. If you have a local retailer, I always suggest um, you know patronizing them. I think it's important to support our lo- local bookstores. But that's that's actually you know the easiest way. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, where I can be a little snarky depending on the day. Um, I have a private Facebook group called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle Backslash My Name, which is another great opportunity to connect with me, and that's a free group, just a group for me to throw ideas out and uh, you know see see how they stick, if you will.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Talk Healthy Today. Please do rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And also, if you want some behind-the-scenes on Talk Healthy Today or a chance monthly to win my book, Clean Eating Dirty Sex, which is a memoir, cookbook, healthy lifestyle guide, it's the title is just a play on words, please go to www.lisadavismph.com. Sign up for my newsletter. And once a month, you'll be getting some great information as well as being entered into a contest to win my book. So again, go to www.lisadavismph.com. Get more on Talk Healthy Today and keep coming back. There's always great information. Thank you.